to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Hello folks, welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. I'm Lane Stretton, I'm going to bring you this podcast this afternoon, it's a privilege to do so. We're talking with an inspiring chap, his name is Jason, Jason Spall, 46 years of age. He grew up in Kilsyth in Victoria, now resides on the Gold Coast in Queensland in that beautiful weather up there in Queensland. He went up there when he was 19 years of age and he's been there for 27 years on that holiday at the moment. He's the middle boy of three boys, all two years apart. He has a sister who's seven years younger. He comes from a self-described loving and supportive family. As you do when you move to Queensland, if it's not hot enough in the middle of the day, you get up on people's roofs. He owns a roofing business, something he's had for 20 years, and we look forward to talking to Jason about that and other things in the next 45 minutes. Jason, maybe I can start by asking, where did the motivation for the roofing business actually come from? I think it, it come from core temperature, mate. I, was, I arrived in the middle of uh, June, two weeks after my 19th birthday, and I'd left behind the uh, a typical miserable, wet, long, slow Victorian <laughs> winter. 
I know and, that type um, of winter, Jason. I know that type of winter. And, and there was this strange orange glow in the sky. And I thought, <laughs> what is that? <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's still there. <laughs> no, just, and, and, you're, and you're still there as well. Yeah, I, I, I guess, um, I, you know, a mate and I had traveled, decided to travel around Australia and, and he sort of decided at the last minute it probably wasn't for him. And I got up here, you know, he thought, you know, well, I'm going to start on my journey. And, and I, honestly, mate, I, I just thought, I, I think this is probably the best place to live. And um and nothing's changed. I love it. I, I love the Gold Coast. I, I really, really love the Gold Coast. It's such an easy, beautiful place to live. And um if you've got to live on the coast, you might as well be outside. So um I fell backwards into roofing, as most guys do with a trade. But um like all good things, it's run its course. And I've decided to, in the last two years, get into something much easier. And that's asbestos removal business. So... Not so much on the tools anymore, but um, still enjoying the Gold Coast. It, it is a beautiful place to live. Terrific, mate. I'm uh, I'm very envious, um, given that we are in the middle of one of those Melbourne winters at the moment, and I reside uh, in Melbourne, so um, I could very much imagine what it's like up there on the Gold Coast um, at the moment. Let's talk about suicide prevention. So. Uh, you have a lived experience, and uh, we'd love to uh, hear all about that this afternoon. But first and foremost, tell me a little bit about yourself. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Tell me a little bit about your family as a bit of a context for your story. Okay, well, you know, we like eastern suburbs, Kilsyth's pretty much typical of most places in Melbourne, I think. Mum, Dad worked. Mum sort of mainly stayed home, and she worked a little bit. As we got older, you know, with three boys, we we're all two years apart, so it was um, it was pretty wild at times. I think my, my sister was uh, lucky to have the seven year gap because um, it really sort of the three of us really bonded through that time, and we probably would have eaten her alive <laughs> if she was the same a similar age as us. Um, what was it like being the middle boy of three boys, mate? Was there any? Anything enduring from that perspective in terms of sitting in the middle of your younger sibling and, and, and of course, your older brother? Well, you know, I think, like, the best thing about having, like, brothers and sisters is, especially with three boys, there's always something to do, mate. And if you got bored, you could just go over and punch somebody and you know, start <laughs> a fight. And, and it was entertainment for hours. And we yeah, there was always someone to kick the footy with or you know, play backyard cricket or build cubby houses. It was really great. It was idyllic, really. And tell me about uh, your upbringing. Tell me about your relationship with your siblings. Was uh, your relationship with your siblings a, a close one, and does it remain close today? Yeah, yeah. When we, were, we were all like, so leaving when I was 19, so that puts my sister at about probably 11. And um, so her and I... You know, like when you're 19, you're not really focused on too much other than yourself and what you're doing. So I, I, I guess she was like my little sister and I didn't sort of really have that sort of an adult relationship with her as I'd, I'd had with Adam and Mark as we, we'd sort of all grown up together. But, yeah. you know, now, um, you know, I speak to Melissa probably at least twice a week. You know, we're really close. Um, and, and, you know, that's been like that for a lot of years and, and it's been really good. 
Adam's sort of, he's a bit different. He's much more introverted and he's sort of, he, he's hard to, he's hard to get on to. He, uh, you got to ring him about 20 times before he'll ring you back. <laughs> but he's got, you know, he's got a young, he's, he's, he's older than me and he's, his son just turned two. So I guess he's got his hands full with that. I, I don't know how he does it, to be honest. It's, it's a lot of work. And, you know, like Mark and I, we're really similar in a lot of ways. And, um, and we clashed a lot because of that. You know, we were always, we were brothers and, and mates, but, you know, we sort of blued a lot. And the good thing about blueing with your brothers is it always seems to work it out, itself out. And, um, you know, this is, this has sort of left me feeling, you know, that feeling like, you know, I always thought I'd see him again. And, and that just, that thought keeps going through my mind. But obviously. So tell us a little bit, um, tell us a little bit about Mark, mate. It's a nice segue into, into learning a little bit about him. We know that suicide is about people. It's, it's often talked about from a statistical perspective, but at the end of the day, it, it is about people. It's about the loss of people, and it's also about the impact that suicide has on people. Tell us a little bit about your brother. What was he like? Oh, mate, he could he could be your best mate. He was like, he was really popular. You know, like a lot of people really liked him, and you know, and I, you know, there was a part of me that was always jealous of that because he was so popular, and and everyone really liked him. You know, he had a really outgoing personality. He had the like he had this cheekiest smile, you know, mate. He could really light up a room, and he just really got on with a lot of people. And a lot of people were really drawn to him. By he, he just had that sort of a magnetism about him, and he was just a really great guy, um, you know. But as things changed through life, you know, he he got married and had a couple of kids and moved up to um, he ended up in Townsville, up up north and. Everything sort of, I think he, he went up there with massive expectations and things just didn't work out. And he ended up back on his own, back down in Melbourne with with mum and dad. And, and, and he, you know, it really sort of, he really struggled with that because he just, he just loved his kids really so much. He just talked about them so much. And he was just so passionate about everything, you know. He's the kind of guy that, but if you're in the trenches and he was next to you, you'd know everything was going to be all right. You know, he was a real Trojan, a real workhorse, really could commit to stuff. And um, just a real all-round great guy. To so be what around. you're telling me is that, um, you know, that he went through a, a pretty significant uh, emotional event in terms of his relationship breaking down. Were his children still in North Queensland when he came back to Melbourne to live with mum and dad? Yeah, yeah. He, he, um, they stayed in Townsville. Um, and, and, and he, he just sort of eventually found his way back to Melbourne, which was good for him because, you know, like mum and dad were there and Adam and, um, Melissa were there and, you know, they both had kids recently and it was, it was good. It was really good for him. I, I, I can't remember how long he was in Townsville f for, but, you know, there was sort of, I guess it come to a stage where there, he, he just couldn't stay up there anymore and, um, coming home. And being around mum and dad and the family was probably what he needed more. So um, tough times for him. I, I don't know how I would have handled it, um, the challenges that he went through. But um, he fought like hard. And that yeah. was, you know, that's the way he was. Take me back to that period of time um, when 
uh, he died through suicide. On reflection, what were some of the events apart from the obviously the loss of his relationship, or at least the um, the visible um, contact with his children and the loss of his relationship with his partner? What were some of the, the other things that, on reflection now, were going on in his life at that particular point in time? Well, maybe he sort of he. He just really struggled with stuff, you know. He he just really hung on to a lot of things, and I remember just saying to him all the time, "Mate, you just got to try and look at things in a different light." Because literally, that's all there was was left was to try and look at things from a different angle. But he just, you know, I think he 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 was just so adamant that he was going to turn things around, and things were always going to go back the way they were, and. You know, it caused him to have a, a series of, you know, sort of minor breakdowns and he ended up in the um, psych ward a few times. I think for his own good, he, he was never diagnosed with anything. But, I, you know, I honestly believe that there must have been something there and whether it had progressed more as time goes on. He, he certainly was not himself towards the end, you know, things just totally different you know mum and dad they saw him two or three times a day he'd become more and more res- res- like really leaning on them a lot and um you know they didn't even see this coming but they knew that he'd changed you know dad says to me he had a conversation with mark and and he'd said to dad you know am i am i getting am i getting better and and dad would said to him no i don't think so mate so he he knew he knew that he was um, changing or, you know, for want of a better phrase, but I, I really, I think he just, he just didn't know how, in the end, how to sort of save himself. He sort of, he, he ended up pretty much, he got invited to a, a party with some friends back where he used to live. And, um, you know, he, he just had this overwhelming feeling you know obviously i wasn't there so i don't know what happened that that people were talking about him and they talked about his his past and it just really threw him and it, and it put him into a spiral and pretty soon after that we lost him and i just think it's one of those just tragedies because you just don't know where people are at when you're talking to them and what you say to them yeah, so I, th- I think it's interesting that you say that, um, you know, he, he couldn't sort of see within himself that either he was deteriorating or he was struggling. He, he asked for some support and some help and others were able to tell him that, yeah, there were some things that he needed to work on. But, um, you know, he, he found it difficult to uh, to remain optimistic, uh, I'm assuming, about life. You know, he wanted to stay positive. He wanted to stay focused on the future, but he was finding it increasingly difficult to be optimistic given his current circumstances. Yeah, and he, and he, you know what, he did try his best. He he went and saw, uh, met with some therapists, and and he just didn't really gel with them. And and he went to a okay. few through meetings and stuff, and 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 nothing sort of. I guess it's like the way I look at it. It's everything. If it, if you're going to join in a partnership with someone, so many parts of it have to be successful. And he just never really could find that successful partnership that he needed to to get him through it. How do you feel about that now, mate, knowing that, you know, he did reach out for professional support and the professional support that he got wasn't able to help him and and he kind of, I guess, gave up on the idea that there was someone out there that could have assisted him to 
move himself into a better place. I, I guess that's where I come back to believing that he, he must have had some sort of um, mental health issue because, okay. um, you know, if you, it, it, looking through the lens of someone who's, whose mind isn't operating at a, a, a normal level, like, you know, when you're feeling great and on top of the world and everything's going going great it's it's easy to just say oh you know you could have just gone maybe keep trying and talk to this person and talk to that person but you know I, I really struggle to understand what his daily thought process must have been because I just can't imagine how getting through a tough day is hard enough for me sometimes but for not having that that sort of your mind working as as it you trusted it always would um, you know, I, I don't know that we can point fingers at anyone. I just, you know, I just think he ran out of time. That's what I keep telling myself that he probably, he, he probably sort of worked himself up and calmed himself down and he could maybe reset. But, um, at, in the end, he just ran out of time. So that's the tragedy of it. So tell us about the day that, as you describe it, he ran out of time. What was your recollection of, uh, of that period of time and what happened uh, in the days after the suicide occurred? Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I, was, um, I was at work because mum and dad were obviously in Melbourne and I was in, on the Gold Coast and we just had our pre-start meeting. We'd just started a big job and I had some couple of guys and we were fixing a really big roof. It was probably 2,000 square metres. And there were so many small components and so many small jobs to do. I just sort of, we just had that meeting and I was just getting off the roof and I was, I was on the scissor lift and I, I was going down and the phone rang and I saw it was dad and I thought, oh, cool, dad's, dad's ringing to have a chat because he's retired and I thought, that's cool. And, um, you know, his voice, when I heard it, I just... I thought, what's happened? And, you know, to be honest with you, mate, I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was something along the lines of just Mark, he's, he's killed himself. And I just remember it was like being hit by a sonic boom. Just my whole body just sort of got hit by some force. And then there was just silence, just nothing, just nothingness. I don't know how, for how long, but um, I remember just sort of getting myself back together and, and asking, you know, how's, how's mum, where's Adam, how's Melissa, and um, and then just shaking. I remember just sort of, I couldn't even get off the scissor lift, I was shaking that much. Once I sort of calmed down, I got myself together and got off the scissor lift, and then I just started dry reaching. I just couldn't, I was just physically sick. Um, I sort of, you know, I was on a job, a tradesman had just started it, so I sort of had to make sure the job was going to keep moving. So I sort of got in my ute and just broke down and thought I'd just sort of let it out. I thought I'd just let it out and, um, and get on with it. So then, you know, I rang a mate. We'd had a mate um, die by suicide a couple of years ago, and and he'd been ringing me. And he'd been asking how my brother is because, you know, he he was a mate. And um, it took him about an hour or so to get up there. But, he, you know, I just had to hang in there. There was nothing I could do. I knew that. But I, I had to get home. But I had to make sure that 
if I, when I left, that things could go on and I wouldn't have to come back because of work. So um, I don't remember driving home. It was probably about an hour drive. And I was, you know, when I got home, my wife was home and I was so glad because, you know, I was going back to Melbourne and, and I didn't want to tell her over the phone. So I just walked in and told her and she was she was devastated, mate. You know, like in the last couple of years, Mark had travelled a lot up to see, you know, to see us and see the kids and I think mainly just to see the kids and us and, and you know, we'd formed a really good bond. Um, so she was just shocked and I just got on a plane and got down to Melbourne and um, I remember when the plane landed, I just I couldn't get out of the seat, mate. I just sat there because I, I, I didn't want to, I just sort of held it together. I didn't want to be on the plane crying and stuff. So I was just holding everything in. So when the plane landed, I, I couldn't get out of my seat. It was like there was a 20-ton weight sitting on my lap and I just waited and I knew, I knew as soon as I got off that plane that it would start. Everything that was going to happen, the emotions, the whole, the whole thing. So I guess I sort of hung on as long as I could before I sort of was going to be immersed in what was coming, and I had, and I was terrified of what was coming. So we got home. I think my cousin picked me up. I, I have really a lot of um, short-term memory loss for probably nine months. So if I've sort of left things out, it's because of that. I, like it was got really bad at one stage. I could I could meet somebody and 10 minutes later, they'd come up to me and talk to me and I had no recollection of meeting him at all. Just nothing or just, and you know, it, it, it affected me for ages, like especially in the business, like, People would ring up and talk about a job or a quote and they'd say, I've been to their house and I had literally no idea, just nothing. Um, so when I got back to um, mum and dad's, mum and dad had got like a big sloping block and out the back there's a big deck that we all built. It was a great project as a family. And um, I remember walking out on that deck and the boards were creaking and I got to the top of this, I got to the stairs and everybody was down in the backyard, probably about 30 people, all like family and friends. And there was just silence, mate. Everyone was just looking at me and I, and I just felt so lonely. And I was looking around the backyard to find mum and dad and Melissa and, and Adam and, you know, in, in sort of, in a moment, I had this this sort of realization wash over me that, you know, I I was they were looking to me. They weren't looking at me. They were looking to me, and 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 I sort of got the realization that I, I had to I had to look after mum and dad and everybody. Like I was, it was going to be me that I took it upon myself anyway. That it was going to be me that had to try and guide everybody through it and just give everybody else a chance to grieve and, and feel what they had to. So so it started, you know. I saw mum and dad. So I think, right, you know, what I'm hearing from you is that you felt that real sense of responsibility. I mean, your initial reactions were, you know, on the job side, I need to make sure that someone's responsible for what it is that happens here. And then there's the responsibility associated with, um, you know, with coming down and looking around and feeling that sense that, hey, listen, I'm the one that's going to have to stand up here and I'm the one that's going to have to organise things and I'm the one that's going to have to lead and guide the family 
Um, where did that come from, mate? Like, is that something that is that a role that you'd played in the past, or this was just a sense given the circumstance that this was going to be important for you to do? I guess um, you know I've been self-employed for twenty years, so I've always sort of had to make those decisions and 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 lead from the pack. You know, I, I mean, I don't know if anybody else wanted me to do that but i i just took on that role i i just you know when you see your mum and dad for the first time and just the utter just desperation and loss in their eyes you know you just you just can't help but feel sorry for them yeah. you know even though mark was my brother I just felt so sad for mum and dad, and and I still do. Like, you know, I I can only think happy memories of Mark. I can't think anything else. But I I, I just the sadness in mum and dad's voices and eyes. You know, like they're heaps better now. But you know that that first twelve months and when I met you, um, that was probably that when I met you. That was the fourteenth return flight in twelve months. Yeah. I'd had up and down, so that was the last one because that was a 12-month anniversary. Tell us a little bit about how mum and dad have coped. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like for a parent. I, I am a father, and, and as you are, um, you know, it's it's one thing to lose a sibling, as we both have, but it would be another thing again to lose a child to suicide. How have mum and dad coped since then? Mate, just, um, you know, that was part of my, the reason why I flew up and down so much. They just, they just needed someone to sit there and talk to, you know, because they're in their 70s and late 60s and, and, and it's just so overwhelming for them. And, and it has been, it's just unthinkable, you know, even, like you catch yourself and you think, I just, I still can't believe that that's how Mark's life played out. And, you yep. know, to be honest with you, I think, you know, there's a big part of the stigma associated with suicide that when mum and dad start talking about Mark and, you know, with people that knew him, that we grew up in a really tight family and like mum and dad have still got the same friends that we had when we were kids and, you know, so they all knew Mark, um, and there's this sort of thing where people are uncomfortable talking about it, and um, you know, and it's a real struggle for Mum and Dad, like especially for Dad, because he's he he wants to talk about it, and and people were just reluctant, and it, and it just, it I guess it hurts him because you know Mark was his son, and he's died by suicide, and he sh you know he should be able to talk about it without people feeling uncomfortable because he's died by suicide you know and it's what one is of it, those what is things. it that you think that makes people uncomfortable in your opinion given what you've seen uh from the, the stigma and look i have a belief that people are, are well-meaning but uh, at the end of the day just simply don't know how to have that kind of conversation it's such a confronting conversation to have um you know i'm really interested in in understanding you know where do you think some of that comes from and why is it so difficult for people to open up and talk about it mate you know what i think it's mindset i mm -hmm. I, I just think that people's attitudes and ideas about suicide were formed many years ago 
um, when there was a lot of um, bigotry and the taboo around suicide. And, and I honestly don't think people have revisited it. Like it was one of the things that I had to, that I was massively confronted with. You know, I had the, the old ingrained ideas and it made, I've been roofing and asbestos removal. I played rugby league, I played rugby union, grew up with three brothers, you know, it's a pretty male dominated environment. And, um, and I just think people probably, it, it catches people off guard, you know, because mm. it's one of those things you never think it's going to happen in your family. You never think it's going to happen to someone you know. And unfortunately, it does. If we flip that coin over a little bit, uh, I'm sure that there were uh, also surprising reactions of a positive nature that, that you experienced. Do you have any recollection of people that maybe you didn't expect that kind of reaction or uh, maybe it, uh, you, know, you were surprised by, by the reaction of someone in a very positive way? How, what sort of support did you get? Oh, like my Personally, like my mates and... Um, you know, my family, my, my my wife's family and that have been really, really good. You know, it's it's difficult. They, like, they all knew him. And, and it, I don't know, mate, it's it's just so difficult. Like, I'm, I'm a bit of a talker. So even having those conversations for me at the start with my mates, because knowing, because I also got the same mates from primary school. And um, I know how they think about suicide because I thought the same way. And just, you know, seeing me in that situation and, and the response um, when I chatted, had a chat with the, one of, you know, one, my oldest friend, he, he was just, it really sort of blew me away how he he was just like, you know, mate, it's, you know, it's just really terrible. And, you know, there was nothing but, you know, acceptance and, and, and support from him because you just never know. I, I, I guess, you know, not having any experience, um yeah, it's just, it's such a tricky thing to navigate, you know. I've just had so many conversations with people and I've always tried to be open and and matter-of-fact about it. It's, um, you know, suicide's there. There's no, Like, my brother didn't do anything wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. Mum and Dad haven't done anything wrong. Um, but still, you know, there's people that, that still are indifferent I suppose about suicide, and um, it's just got to change. So part of that coping mechanism for you was to spend time talking about it, so that you got a greater understanding of it. You raised your awareness around uh, the issue and some of the drivers. Is that a form of trying to understand the nature of what had happened and? I guess looking forward, what you might be able to take away from that, and are there lessons that you've taken from this? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, like it, it's forced me to reassess my stand on everything. You know, I, I had to like because you can imagine fourteen flights in twelve months, transitioning out of one business into another, dealing with how I thought about my brother's death and trying to help mum and dad and and trying to keep my family together as well. I, I pretty much ended up at at my wits end and and um you know I looked towards I you know I was really spinning out of control and I you know and, and I I looked towards thinking, you know, God, how am I gonna how am I gonna do this? So I started, you know, listening to podcasts like this, um, 
reading books about resilience, um, spirituality, anything I could get my hands on just so I could sort of recenter myself and, and, and go forward. And, and it's really been a, a, one of the hardest years, but one of the most rewarding years in, in as much as my, I studied everything from Navy SEALs to Oprah Winfrey to the Dalai Lama. And um, <laughs> it's been a bit of a journey, but um, you know what? I needed it. And, and you know, if, if, if I can say anything, I know, I know it sounds like a cliche, look for the silver lining and, and there really isn't a silver lining, but, you know, Mark's death has forced me to become a better man and, and I can always thank him for that. So obviously suicides, you know, this, this, this experience that you had with Mark, which has so altered your life has, has certainly done so from a knowledge perspective and certainly done so from an attitude perspective around this subject and lots of other areas. What other things would you say have changed in your life as a result of Mark's death through suicide? Oh, man, I've just become so much more compassionate and, and, you know, really sort of, really, you know, like it's, it really makes you realise that people out there just, everyone's fighting their own battles Everyone's got their own demons, and it just people just need a bit more consideration. And, and I've had to learn that, you know, I really, really don't have any time for those people that go out of their way to have a go at people. I just really that sort of stuff really turns my stomach now. Um, okay. But you know, and and I just I feel compelled to help anyone that's that's struggling. And, you know, I would think that podcasts such as this and being able to tell your story, as I know you do in community environments and also now on this podcast, is going to be enormously helpful for those who are experiencing and grappling with uh, suicide at the moment. Two questions that we like to ask on Rose's Radio just to finish up. The first is, what do you think we need to change in the way that society deals with the subject of suicide? I just, you know what? I think we just need to bring it out of the darkness, mate. These conversations like this, um, giving people the ability to access a conversation like this in their own time and their own privacy, like I, I, I was able to, can really do a lot to change people's thinking. Um, it's just a mindset shift. That's all it is. Um, you know, it's just so important that people just start to reframe the way they think about suicide. And what's the message, the second question that we ask at Rose's Radio is, what is the key message that you would like to put out? The thing that, I guess, the culmination of everything that you've been through, and you'll continue to grow and develop, no doubt, over the years as years go by, uh, and as you continue to grapple with this particular subject area, but what's the message that you'd like to put out to people who might be grappling with this issue right now? I guess the message is there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of resources out there, and and there is a lot of help, and there's a lot of you know like I, I guess when you're down and out, you think nobody cares and nobody's interested. Like Mark had over 300 people at his funeral, and you know there's people like you know yourself and Bronnie that, and now me that are putting a massive chunk of their life towards 
anybody who who is in need. There's professionally trained people, and there is always hope. And you know, sometimes, you know, I just wish Mark had given himself enough time. Maybe people just need to take a breath, and um, you know, give themselves enough time, and think things through. If so It's been a privilege. Yeah, thanks, mate. It's it's been a privilege to talk to you and to explore your personal lived experience. And uh, your story is amazing. I know you probably don't think it's amazing because none of us do. We just think it's part of our our life and part of uh, the events that have you know made us what we are. But it is a truly amazing story to hear from someone such as yourself. And we thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk to you about. It is a tough subject. And what we'd like to say to people who might be listening to this podcast is um, if this draws out some personal emotion for you as a listener, please ensure that you are safe and that there are those around you that can support you in the event that this story or others that you may hear on Rose's radio have a connection with your own lived experience. Jason, it's been a great pleasure to hear from you. Thank you so much for being so open and honest with your story and that we wish you well in your endeavours as I know you continue to get the, the message of suicide prevention out to as many people as you possibly can. In conclusion, we remember those that we've lost to suicide and we acknowledge the suffering that suicide brings when it touches our lives. We really do need to provide for all people a future that inspires and empowers individuals and communities and is filled with hope and meaning. And if you or anyone that uh, you know needs support, you should contact people like Lifeline, like the Suicide Callback Service or Kids Helpline who help with children and teenagers from ages 5 to 25 offering phone, web and email counselling and also information for parents. In the event that you'd like to assist the work of Roses in the Ocean in conjunction with Suicide Prevention Australia through speaking engagements in your local community, then please make contact with Roses in the Ocean on www.rosesintheocean, all one word, .com.au or 1300-411-461. Thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to bringing you other inspiring stories from those with a suicide lived experience.